and welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Before I give you a rundown on today's program, I want to thank a couple of our local business partners, uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store and also Gateway's Cafe, open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. You can either dine in or order takeout, and Gateway also offers an excellent catering service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, featuring both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Noche also has a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Check out Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, later in the program, we'll be talking. Uh, we'll be talking about a, a a recycling plant proposed for a southeast side Chicago neighborhood that is causing a lot of problems. In fact, there are people going on a hunger strike to protest what's being proposed. We'll also talk with uh, uh, the vice president of the National Dairy Farm Program with the uh, National Milk Producers Federation about the question of when is milk milk. <laughs> And uh, also joining us later in the program, uh, Jeffrey Weiss, will be talking about the, uh, the, the, uh, the study out of Sweden that's tracking the global rise in political authoritarianism. And then finally, in our ag section of the program, our other ag section today, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm about portion size. Yeah, I guess it matters. Hey, but I'm really delighted right now to welcome to the program my former legislative colleague, Representative Steve Sukup. Steve, how you doing? Hey, Ed. Yeah. Good. Glad to be able to join you today. Yeah. So we, we, so we served at the State House for a bunch of years, and we got along pretty good? Yeah, there was always uh, something we could find in common. So that uh, was the fun part of being in the House. Yeah, we didn't like institutionalized gambling. We, didn't like, uh, we, we, we wanted more support for public transit. I know we also worked on some questions of land use and farmland protection. Correct, correct. And on the, uh, the gambling, it was one of those that... Uh, I think we both looked at that as uh, some type of a tax. And also, the thing I remember about it, when we were going to take some funds away from the lottery, it wasn't the lottery that was upset. It was the Iowa Newspapers Association. So it's always uh, interesting <laughs> right. politics who really gets involved. The advertising revenue. Right, right. Yes. I'd forgotten that. Thanks for the reminder. The other thing politically that you and I have in common is we both ran for governor. And neither of us was successful, although you did pretty well. I, I did okay. You did pretty well. And you're, uh, you're also a business owner. You own Sukup Manufacturing. Yes, family business. So uh, brother and I and third generation and uh, occasionally a fourth generation stopping in. And more and more folks in the ag sector are concerned about climate change. What's your take on the climate crisis? Oh, I think it's... Uh... I think it's for real. I think uh, it's one that we have to be uh, do what we can to to minimize it. Uh, you know, I'm not necessarily fully convinced it's all uh, human made at this point. That's just sort of the combinations, but uh, definitely we have a we play a major part in it, and so we need to uh, take a look, um, minimize our, our carbon uh, footprint. It needs to be sort of the first thing. To what what? Or, what what percentage of uh, the climate climate change is attributable to human activity, in your opinion? Oh, I mean, yeah, I'm just grabbing percentage. I'd say over fifty percent, sixty percent, or something okay. like that. So I think we're probably in some type of uh, timing with the the global, you know, sequences and 
and stuff, but uh, I think we can uh, do some things to, to minimize it as well. And is Sukup Manufacturing taking any action on the climate front? Uh, well, it's one uh, for us. Uh, it's like this last uh, year we put in a uh, solar field so uh, for 10% of our energy. So we're making uh, doing some evaluating on that. We actually made part of the, the racking system for it. So, you know, trying to uh, pull in some of that uh, aspect of what we, what we could possibly do in the the future, but it's uh, like everything, whether it's uh, solar, wind, ethanol, that everything can have, needs to be a, a portion of the equation to start uh, reduction. Mm. And then uh, what we can do to, uh, well, first of all, stop the increase and then uh, do some reduction after that. Stop the increase in carbon emissions and other greenhouse gases. Correct. Right. Okay. Correct. So I, yeah. you, you and I agree on a bunch of stuff, uh, Steve. One thing we don't agree on is uh, – is, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I did not vote for the man. You did. What, 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 I did. What was it that attracted you or that appealed to you about voting for Donald Trump? Well, uh, Donald Trump, uh, I mean, he spoke his mind, so I think that was a little bit uh, uh, refreshing. Uh, he would uh, call it out. I think the consistency, I think, is what uh, some of us were looking for in rules and regulations and taxes that uh, instead of the wild swings uh, – back and forth and i mean he would he would answer a question i guess it was one of those during the uh campaign uh you know uh now president biden he was asked a question whether he'd pack the court he couldn't answer the question or refused to so i you know i think there was some a lot of questions that you might not always agree with uh, donald trump that you know is going to build the wall or you know what the other ramifications are but uh he called them the way he's seen them, and sometimes a little bit too close to the nerve for some of us also, but uh, uh, he was pretty consistent in his views. What were examples of when he might have been, quote, too close to the nerve for you personally? Oh, I mean, it's sort of his uh, offhanded comments, whether it was the, uh, oh, the, when he was in the first campaign, and uh, I'm trying to think of the reporter that they were in the the coach in and uh, stuff and making some uh, little crude uh, remarks that way. And then, no, I guess the other one was uh, his comments on Haiti. So I visited Haiti. I know it's uh, people down there, the folks, the the kids, the teenagers are working, want to have a, uh, a future and uh, it's not in their hands. Uh, it's not in their hands to be able to, to do that. And uh, so I don't, don't blame them and would like us to work closer to give them opportunities. All right. So were there any Democrats running in 2020 that you could have supported? Oh, the ones, uh, you know, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Tulsi <clears throat> Gabbard, uh, those were probably two that, uh, uh, you know, would would give given some consideration, or I guess uh, as you look at the VP spot, I'd been a lot more comfortable with, with them than maybe what, uh, with Vice President uh, Harris. Right, um, and I, I think Klobuchar might have been in consideration. I think I think Gabbard has been pretty much a, a, a denied she's on her, any. She's on her own island right now. <laughs> she's on her own island, but and she she was. I mean, once she went against Hillary Clinton four years ago, boom. Yeah. You know the the, the retribution has been thick and 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 yeah. and, and fierce. Prim so, primaries are brutal, aren't they? <laughs> How would you know? <laughs> Yes, we both had that experience. Back to January 6th, I'm just going to assume, knowing you, that you were fairly appalled by what happened at the U.S. Capitol that day. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was appalling. It was an absolute uh, riot. And, uh, you know, it was unnecessarily fueled uh, by the president and a few others. So I, you know, not that I'd ever have the chance, but I would have voted on the the quit side as well. But uh, it was uh, appalling. It was a riot. And uh, uh, those folks were planning to take it into their own hands. So long before but uh, there was definitely some fuel added to it so I know I know some um, on the political right want to blame Antifa or BLM for inciting some of the violence at that day do you do you subscribe to that viewpoint oh not no no I, I there's there's probably been uh, you know a two percent or something like that but no it was just uh, uh, folks that uh, were out to do destruction yeah and try they think they were making a point for a political factor but they were just doing it for themselves and destruction and it sounds like you would agree with mitch mcconnell who said uh and i quote trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking for uh, for provoking the events of the day yeah i might change a couple of the adjectives there but i mean he <laughs> i guess i'd stay more with the fuel but uh it, you know it was uh it wasn't necessary so yeah, and so you're hearing somebody, hearing a senator say that, I would think, okay, that senator probably yeah. voted to convict, but McConnell voted to acquit, and you you said you would vote, right. you vote, you would have voted to acquit as well, right? Yes, hmm. yes. Again, you know, I, I guess some, and and I know I know the poll suggests that the general public thinks that the president was responsible, largely, maybe not entirely, but largely, and that uh, there should be some accountability. Um, do you think do you think the U.S. Uh, Senate is out of step with the public's will on that uh, that matter? I think, uh, and I go back to, I mean, uh, I think Pelosi was just trying to play every political card she could. It was all about uh, them passing another one. Uh, I think they would have had more heartburn for Republicans if they would have just gone with a hard censure and. Uh, uh, that way instead of, uh, you know, the, the permanent uh, constitutional ramifications. And I think if they would have just gone with the censure, they would have had Republicans more boxed on that one than the uh, absolute uh, uh, trying to impeach. And why do you think they, they, they chose that option? Well, I, I think they were trying to... Uh, end his uh, political career. I mean, you know, 2024, they want to uh, put a stake in that. Although, I'm, you know, it's it'll be interesting how the Republican Party transforms and heals and moves uh, forward with, you know, you know, fair, somewhat divided at this point. And how do we get the 74 million voters uh, back voting for the, the right things of of uh, fair taxes and consistent rules and regulations and uh, uh, good trade policies. So, and this is probably way too uh, premature of a question, but if Trump were to run again in 2024, do you would you see yourself as supporting him? Uh, I would check out the field. Yeah, well, I mean... Sort of like when you voted on uh, House leaders, your, your first question is always to be, who else is running? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right, right. Right, right, right. Yeah. 
So uh, let, let me just for, I'm going to let me try to think like a Republican for a minute. OK, bear with me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I never things I thought would never been said. So, <laughs> so wouldn't it be better for the Republican Party uh, if Trump was not able to run again in 2024, if he had been uh, convicted by the Senate and really had, had a firm stop put to his political ascendancy? Wouldn't that have been better for the Republican Party? I think uh, I think uh, we'd be assuming that he'd be uh, I'd be pretty bitter about it. Uh, you know, the ones I mean, and that's the and I think it's happened on both sides of the political parties is that uh, people get primaried and, uh, you know, that's uh, that's the weapon that uh, you can defeat somebody in a primary, but you're probably going to lose the general right. election, I think, is probably what happens uh, a majority of the time. So uh, I guess I'd, I would hope he'd look to be take what is unifying with uh, the Trump on the, the trade policies and rules and regulations and speak in your mind that he takes the positives and you know he had a strong economy he did put that together and because uh, they they liked his strong voice uh, but uh, I think it'd be difficult with all the actions to to make it to the or through the general election there are plenty of Republican leaders who are beginning to distance themselves more and more from President Trump do you see that trend is continuing uh, or and I, again, I, I wonder whether the impeachment trial has had any impact, and whether that trend is likely to accelerate. Oh, I think everybody's uh, moved past it now. So, or, I mean, it. Uh, I don't think it'll accelerate. No. Okay, and and again, this is uh, independent of whatever whatever could have transpired at the impeachment trial. Uh, it, it does seem to a lot of us, and and. Uh, and not just on the political left, that there is a newfound um, interest or a deepened interest in using violence to address one's political discontent. Um, again, some of that on the left, but very much more so on the right. Uh, and, and a lot of concern about um, organizations like the Proud Boys. Are, we, are, we, are you concerned that those groups will continue to be emboldened and continue to take uh, violent actions? Well, I think they were certainly emboldened there for that uh, six, eight-week uh, time period, and I guess that's a, a good way to put it. I think it, for the rest of us on the Republican side, uh, it's our warning that uh, we don't want to be associated or have them part of our our process. And uh, so I think that's that's our warning that they they shouldn't be part of our uh, political process going going forward and. And I think a little bit of it was, you know, it's been out of control, whether it's been, you know, Portland on the one side or Seattle or the Charleston. So, I mean, it's uh, I, hopefully everybody's on both sides has gotten a pretty good distaste that this is not the direction we go. One of the things in the future that I look forward to working for is uh, uh, term limits, I think, is one of the things that we have to work towards in our national politics to get a little bit. Uh, what would term limits look like? What would that look like? Oh, and I don't care how I, I could see 18 years on House and 18 years on Senate, but uh, at some point, and as you know as well in politics, you think you're going to be there forever. It's the adrenaline and you're doing everything for the next election. 
And if uh, some of these, you know, realize, hey, I'm going to have to do something different, whether it's this year or four years from now, uh, I think it would uh, change some attitudes uh, with things on it. So I, I, so I'm a big supporter of the term limits. Well, Steve, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to visit with us. When we come back from a short break, we're going to talk about uh, the hunger strike that residents of the southeast side of Chicago are engaged in in response to a, an environmental injustice that uh, they feel really, really strongly about. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. your host. We're broadcasting from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. I'd like to take a second to thank the nonprofit organizations who help make this program possible. Thanks to Bold Iowa, building urban-rural coalitions to address climate change, prevent the abuse of eminent domain, and protect Iowa's soil, air, and water. Learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Get information about classes and workshops at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. So when I walked across the country with the Great March for Climate Action in 2014, I got a firsthand taste of the very challenging situation facing uh, neighborhoods just south and east of Chicago, South Chicago, Whiting, uh, Gary, Indiana, the, um, the industrial impact on people's lives, it, it was impossible not to notice just how severe and how problematic it was. And I want to talk a little bit more about that. But fast forward to right now, um, and this is a, I, I've seen this story in a number of places, but the best uh, take I've seen on it yet was in The uh, the Guardian. Yeah, the British newspaper, doing the best job of reporting on American news. The, uh, <laughs> the story is about uh, a new toxic plant in, the, in Chicago's minority neighborhood and how it has sparked a hunger strike in opposition to this. And this has been going on, I believe, by almost, almost two weeks now. There have been six people who have been protesting the, um, the uh, reserve management group plant. This is um, a recycling company 
that was a, it was closed in a more affluent, surprise, surprise, part of town. And lo and behold, it's reincarnating, reopening on Chicago's southeast side. And of course, those are neighborhoods that are very racially diverse. Uh, a lot of you know, black and brown people live there, according to the story. And, uh, and, there, and, and I will quote again, in an, in an effort to stop the city from granting RMG, again, that's a reserve management group, uh, granting RMG its final permit, community activists have now announced a hunger strike. Um, you know, they've been, or, they've, they've been organizing a while because the, the, the impacts of the industrialization of that area on people's health and neighborhoods is huge. The, um, the story starts with a very disturbing um, anecdote about a, a young woman named Trinity Colon. Uh, she was um, raised in that heavily industrialized area on the southeast side of Chicago, and um, she just took asthma for granted. Uh, respiratory issues are part of her life, part of most, part of many people's lives there. And uh, the story po points out the ritual that came with those respiratory illnesses, like keeping windows shut to ward off billowing clouds of petroleum coke. That just became ordinary, normal, expected. And twice a year, once or twice a year, she would be driven to the clinic, the health clinic, by her mother when her bronchitis would act up. And she would receive treatment that her family often couldn't afford. She's 17 now, and she worries that the health problems she and her community face are about to get worse because of the um, possibility of moving this recycling plant. Now, you think recycling, okay, that's good, right? Recycling's really good. Well, you know, it's not in some ways, in many ways. This particular facility is moving out of an old metal scrapyard in an affluent part of town after having numerous environmental violations. Okay, so this is great, right? You, 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 you're forced to close and move from where the rich people live because of all these violations, and you're moving to where the poor people live, the minority people live. It's just, um, it's wrong, wrong, and, and more wrong. And, uh, and again, recycling, it's, it's a process that is very polluting. The contamination is severe. And again, I'm, I'm a little bit familiar with the petroleum coke plant uh, in that part of Chicago because the very first night after we had our rally in downtown Chicago, we had a day off in Chicago on the Great March for Climate Action in early September. And the next day we marched to the south side of Chicago where we stayed uh, at a church actually. But um, many marchers took a break that day to go to the uh, pet coke uh, a pet coke facility. I, I didn't go because I was busy working with the uh, host to make sure that everything went smooth on that end. But it was um, a disturbing experience. People came back um, pretty upset at what they'd seen. And hard to imagine that people live with that day after day, generation after generation. And yet now the city, of course, is going to allow it to become even worse. So I've been trying to get somebody on this program who's been working on this, who's been uh, involved with the uh, the hunger strike. Uh, that's a powerful statement. And again, maybe if uh, the International Guardian is picking it up, uh, perhaps there'll be more interest in the story here in this country. I know it sounds ironic, right, that we have to get our news about America from a British publication, but maybe that will, uh, maybe that's just the way it goes in a uh, country where Freedom of the press is uh, increasingly stressed. 
So, you know, of course, the, uh, the argument that they always make when they want to move one of these things to a, a poor neighborhood is, well, you get the jobs, the jobs, the jobs. And, uh, and that argument does convince some people, unfortunately. But this particular neighborhood has seen so many health problems, so many injustices, that it looks like they really are fighting back in a strong way. And um, we'll see where it goes. I, you know, just reflecting back, though, again, jumping back and forth here, but the, uh, the day that we marched from the south side of Chicago, after, we had, after many of our marchers had gone on to experience the uh, pet coke plant and to see just how bad that was, we marched from there to Gary, Indiana, where we stayed in another church that night. Uh, churches were very nice to us on that march. Uh, that was a 19-mile day. And we marched uh, through East Chicago and Whiting. I'll read you the, um, the segment from my book, Marcher, Walker, Pilgrim, about that experience. The 19-mile march to Gary, Indiana, takes us through East Chicago and Whiting, past the most disturbing industrial carnage most of us have ever witnessed. We pass miles of smokestacks and flaming towers, garish monuments exposing the lie behind modernity's sanitized facade. Of all the ugliness we've seen on the march, this is the worst. It's also the most relevant to our purpose and mission. Only Fernando is familiar with the area and doesn't seem shocked. Many marches are overwhelmed. Some cry. The brake truck waits for us as we pass the main gate of the BP refinery. Several marchers grab our large climate march banner and unfurl it across the entrance as others rush over to hold it up. Two large trucks approach, and security officers order us to let the vehicles through. Most marchers move out of the way, but Sean, Mac, and two others sit in front of the gate, blocking traffic for 15 to 20 minutes, until police arrive and threaten to arrest them if they don't move. Eventually, they do. Unlike the die-in in Chicago that occurred two days earlier during our rally, this spontaneous action makes sense to me. With the exception of Fernando... How could any of us have known how powerfully these refineries would impact us as we walked by, close enough to smell the toxic fumes and hear the flames shooting into the air? Later, we stop at the home of Thomas Frank, a nearby resident who has helped organize opposition to BP's expansion plans. You just walk through a gated industrial community, Thomas says. He tells us that the sprawling complex of oil, re oil refineries and steel mills stretches 20 miles along Lake Michigan by neighborhoods that are 90% black and Hispanic. The water here is badly contaminated with lead and other heavy metals, he says. The air quality in Lake County ranks as one of the worst in the nation, and we've got one of the highest infant mortality rates, too. Thomas goes on to explain that, earlier this year, BP completed a $4.5 billion expansion of its refinery. Now they want to tear down 100 homes in a National Historic District and displace 400 people. They just don't care, and they bought off the politicians who don't care either. Walking away from the main gate of the refinery, I see a patch of ground that at one time might have been a small parking lot, last used perhaps 20 years ago. Life has sprouted between the cracks of the pavement. Sunflowers, goldenrod, a dozen or more species, and a soft, wavy grass I don't recognize are gradually reclaiming this tortured sliver of earth. Through the patient power of life and rebirth, these unassuming plants are toppling this kingdom of concrete, undermining an empire that only a few years ago seemed unassailable.
I pick one of the grass's seed heads and run its soft, furry surface through my fingers. I'm nurtured by its touch and encouraged by the simple fact that this wand of grass lives. It remains my companion for the next few miles. I shift it from one hand to the other, every so often scattering a few of its seeds. Occasionally, I carry it between my teeth, biting down gently to taste the grass's sweet juice. I feel sadness for those who live next to these hideous refineries. I offer a silent prayer that, despite the greed and madness that created this sacrifice zone, life here will survive and, in time, thrive. Again, that's a reading from my book, Marcher, Walker, Pilgrim, about the 2014 Great March for Climate Action. When we pass through south side of Chicago, Whiting, um, East Chicago, and Gary, Indiana. And again, right now, the challenge continues to push back against not just uh, fossil fuel infrastructure expansions, but other polluting, contaminating expansions like the, like the recycling facility that they want to move there. And again, I com commend the people for speaking out against it, for taking, uh, you know, very challenging actions, including a hunger strike. And I hope we hear more about it, not just from the international press, but from the U.S. media as well. All right, folks, back in a minute with you, Ed Fallon, with more conversation here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas-Findley. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Snowy Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, where is it not snowy this, this season? It's crazy out there. Hey, uh, thanks to our business partners, including a Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Uh, learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page, or just give Dr. Holding a call at 515-232-8766. All right, so on this program, we frequently discuss some of the conflicts between traditional diets that include meat and those that eschew meat completely. And uh, lately, I've been wanting to take a look at the, uh, the um, dairy industry and to see how they're faring in response to the uh, kind of barrage <laughs> of information coming from what I call the vegan lobby. Anyway, uh, <laughs> joining me for that conversation today is uh, Emily Yeiser Stepp. She's the vice president of the uh, National Dairy Farm Program. Uh, that's a program of the National Milk Producers Federation. Emily, welcome to the program. 
Thank you, Ed. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so just to let, let folks know what we're talking about, FARM, it's an acronym, and it stands for Farmers Assuring Responsible Management, correct? That is correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is, again, as I, I think I said it correctly, it's a, it's a program sponsored by the National Milk Producers Federation. And uh, I guess what I'm wondering is where did, where did this program come from? Did, it, did, it, did a program focused on assuring responsible management of dairy herds did that was that generated because farmers weren't taking care of their animals? No, it's actually the the opposite. We know for um, for centuries that our dairy farmers have been you know the primary caretakers of of their animals and do so in the in the best ability. Um, but what we were finding as uh, the early two thousands rolled around was that that communication um, you know outward to our consuming public was really limited. And, um, and frankly, you know, dairy was actually one of the, the later commodity groups to embrace communicating um, more openly about our uh, good animal management practices. So beef, poultry, and swine all had quality assurance programs that date as early as the, the um, you know, into the early 1980s. And as dairy was looking at how we continue to provide that trust and assurance uh, to our consumers that they can feel good about the milk and dairy products that they're purchasing for their families. Um, What was the best method of doing that? And certainly we, uh, in collaboration with our partners at Dairy Management Inc., our checkoff organization, wanted to very much tell that story, not only by individual dairy farmers, but also utilizing data and verifiable proof points. And so that was really the inception of the farm program. And in 2009, we came together, National Milk Producers Federation, in collaboration with the checkoff organization to develop the farm program to with the ultimate goal of providing those assurances and trust and proof points to our consumers that, you know, their milk comes from a good place, that they can feel good, that our dairy farmers are indeed taking care of their animals. And, and since then, the program's evolved into um, providing assurances around environmental stewardship practices as well as workforce development. Okay, so in some ways, though, dairy was one of the first targets of uh, among, among meat and uh, dairy product producers. Dairy was targeted real early. Like when I was a kid, it suddenly became bad to eat butter, and margarine was the product that you had to consume if you were concerned about your health. And... Uh, you know, that's probably way before your time. Again, it was almost before my time. <laughs> I do remember it. <laughs> right. But um, but that, uh, you know, that was one of the first initiatives to discredit uh, a meat-based, animal-based product. And it seems like the dairy industry has recovered from that. And most people who still eat dairy understand that, yeah, butter is superior to margarine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as as science and research has evolved, particularly in the nutrition space, I think there's even just a greater appreciation for the the role that dairy can play in a, in a healthy diet. Those healthy fats are critical, and certainly in our, our younger population, our children, it's just essential for their growth and development. And having that acknowledgement from uh, all the variety of key stakeholders, um, you know, the trusted government agencies, the FDA, um, USDA, as well as the, uh, you know, the pediatric associations. It's just, uh, it's, it's just that bolstering of what we already knew in the dairy industry, but has helped in combating maybe some of the negativity, negative um, press that had 
um, you know, had precluded the dairy industry yeah. early in, well, in some of those conversations. And, and yeah. some, of, some of the pushback against dairy is that, yeah, okay, well, babies need breast milk. But after that, milk is, like most mammals, mammals don't need milk after that. So any, any dairy products we're feeding to kids post-breastfeeding is, is antithetical to their true dietary needs. That's one of the arguments. It is one of the arguments, um, and, and I think as you look to all the nutritional research, again, that our partners um, in, in the dairy checkoff space have, um, have analyzed and worked collectively within the industry, it does um, it, it actually negates that, that commentary um, pretty profusely. And so, you know, I think that's, that's been um, something that we continue to bolster in, in our in our opportunities with National Milk Producers Federation is maintaining uh, the structure of, of dairy products in a healthy diet and through those dietary guidelines. Yeah. Now, the, the, the vegan lobby, as I lovingly call it, has gotten really, really strong. I mean, they're, they're, so, <laughs> they're so effective now that uh, I, I did a Google search uh, uh, before, we, before this program. I, I searched for debate over what is milk, and here's the first thing to pop up, and I quote, beyond health-related issues, the bad treatment of farm animals and environmental concerns are making people uncomfortable about milk. The industrialized production of animal milk is also a resource-intensive process in terms of the use of energy, water, and cattle feed. End quote. Are you losing the battle here? I mean, that's, what, that's the first thing that pops up in my Google search. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's exactly why we have the farm program is is to demonstrate that we're not losing that battle. And in fact, we're we are winning that battle in in conveying the good practices that that the dairy industry does have in place. Now, the vegan um, lobbyists, as you like to to refer to them, um, certainly make uh, their compelling arguments. But what we recognize is that the majority of our consuming public are conflicted health seekers. And what they're looking for is more information to give them permission to um, purchase food that is safe, healthy, and affordable for their families. And, um, and instead of using scare tactics um, like our, our vegan um, lobbyists like to do, we rest our programs and, and our practices in, in science and, and best management practices for the industry. And that's, that's what we feel very um, proud of is that we have that uh, to, to help us defend what we're doing. Um, and, and recognize that we're not we're not looking to get you know everybody to consume dairy products as much as right. some some moral there may be some moral convictions that our consumers have that we just can't get over um, the use of animals for milk and meat production. So we're not but, we're not going to force feed cheddar cheese to people. Right. Well, exactly. Right, good, but good, but good. what we want to right. But what we want to do is is provide the information um, in a way that is um, is consumable for for the general public to understand both sides of the story and hopefully make yeah. their the an educated decision for what they need to be feeding um, for feeding their families. Obviously, we, we you know we feel very passionate that their sentiments are are inaccurate really why we have a program that helps to bolster that. So yeah. what about what about the uh, the use of the word milk itself? We have oat milk, almond milk, uh, soy milk, you name it. There's other all sorts of other types of milk and there's some some uh, pressure I mean maybe even within the court system now uh, that that term is being misappropriated by uh, by producers that aren't specifically focused on mammalian milk, goats. <laughs> 
Yeah, and, and what we as National Milk Producers uh, Federation are really um, advocating for in our policy work is simply for FDA to enforce the rules that are already in place in, in the uh, determination and the definition of milk. Um, we uh, refer to those other beverages as just that. They are beverages, and they, we are blessed to live in a country that provides us with a lot of variety of options. But we do feel very passionately, for obvious right. reasons, um, that, we, uh, that milk should be reserved for those products that are produced by a mammal. Simply asking the FDA to um, uphold their enforcement of those definitions is is really what we're lobbying for um, but but as of now but, yeah. but as of now the those industries you're, you're allowed to call it almond milk that works you can do that legally in 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 the united well not legally technically in the united states the the lack of fda um enforcing those laws have allowed for those other industries to use the word um milk technically fraudulently. Um, And if you look at other countries around the world, Canada, just our neighbors to the north, actually have enforced those regulations around the world in milk, and it's been very successful um, and not infringed upon um, the marketplace for those other beverages. But what we're what we're needing um, here in the U.S. is simply for those rules to be to be enforced the way that they've been Mm -hmm. written um, by by the FDA. Well, Emily, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us. Uh, You've got your work cut out for you. Uh, We sure do. Uh, And cows have their work cut out for them, especially in this weather. This is hard on livestock. We have a small chicken flock, and uh, they're doing okay. But it takes extra effort to keep them warm and alive in this weather. So... It absolutely does, and we've got a pretty dreary day here in Northern Virginia, um, but appreciate the the extreme temperatures that you all are in in the Midwest and and Western states, and um, and this is really where uh, the the questions around do we care for our animals um, really are are put to bed because our farmers are out there uh, doing their best to make sure that our livestock are being cared for in, in all types of weather. Um, and making sure that they can get those healthy, wholesome products to the grocery stores um, for everybody to enjoy. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Folks, we've been talking with Emily Eiser Stepp. She's the vice president of the National Dairy Farm Program, a program of the National Milk Producers Federation. When we come back, Jeffrey Weiss is going to join us. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, tracking the global rise of political authoritarianism. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, Well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon here with you folks. Uh, 
thanks to Architecture by Synthesis, where Mark Klipsham offers planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Architecture by Synthesis specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. That's Architecture by Synthesis. And thanks to all of these sponsors who helped make this program possible. All right, I'd like to welcome to the program Jeffrey Weiss. Uh, Jeffrey Weiss is an instructor at, at Grandview College in Des Moines and also Des Moines Area Community College, and he frequently comes us on this program to discuss foreign affairs. And we've been noticing the uh, rise in political authoritarianism around the world. Yeah, not just in the U.S., <laughs> but uh, it seems to be a trend. And uh, kind of putting the Republican Party of the U.S. in perspective of what's happening around the globe, I think is pretty instructive and interesting. Jeffrey, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no, thank you. I'd appreciate being here. And you've been studying the uh, recent report out of Sweden that uh, takes yeah. a really deep dive into this stuff. Uh, yeah, real deep dive. This may be the only group of literally thousands of scholars around the world and also uh, country experts who simply ask the question, you know, political parties around the globe, uh, how democratic are they as opposed to how autocratic are they? And the information, it, you can find it at um, v-dem.net, v-dem.net. I encourage people to get into the data. It's really interesting. You know, and it's some of the more, I mean, I don't know, I could get some in the, the findings right away, start talking about some of what, what has really jumped out, and that is that, you know, Angela Merkel, for quite some time, has been referred to as the leader of the free world. I mean, that wasn't <laughs> something that was just before 2016. But the United States has moved faster than any country in the democratic world towards um, more of an autocracy or more um, undemocratic um, norms. And the Democratic Party has stayed relatively the same. Uh, it's still a little more conservative than most uh, even center-right parties. Is, that, is that fair? Is, 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 it, is it just a little more conservative, or is it pretty uh, notably to the right of a lot of the um, mainline mainstream parties in Europe, European countries? Well, it, it just depends on the two wings. You know, if you talk more the Democratic Socialist wing, the Alexander Ocasio-Cortez wing, then it's a little more comparable, but the only conservatives today in Washington, D.C. are the, the sort of the wing of the Democratic Party that's more the Hillary Clinton wing. So the conservatives, the only in D.C., you know, that, that are, would be, would be that group of Democrats. And the biggest change has been in the um, Republican Party. It's, it's the, the founders of this report said, the Republican Party has shifted more than any other political party in all of the democratic world. Um, and in particular, just no longer a party, no longer playing by the, the democratic rules of the game. I mean, undermining the legitimacy of elections, um, you know, essentially a willingness to cheat. But what, 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 do, you, what do you say to people who, people who point out that, well, the U.S. isn't really a democracy, it's a constitutional republic? Then I guess if you if, if if that's what you point out, and part of your political party is a willingness to suppress the vote and undermine elections and everything like that, then then welcome to autocracy. And 
the interesting thing is it's not just in the field of elections, but one of the more alarming portions of the report is a political party now that tolerates and encourages political violence. One of the things you saw on January 6th that the University of Chicago researchers, Robert Pape, is pointing out is that the majority of the rioters, they were not members of far-right groups, but these were normal mainline members of the GOP, a significant part of its political base, including doctors, lawyers, architects, business owners, a handful of elected officials. Uh, Papers have been getting a little more attention on on some media, but I, I don't really think enough. And yeah, and, and so, some the of those aspect, some of those elected officials who protested at January on, on January sixth are no longer elected officials. They were basically ousted because of their activities. Correct? I I, I I'm not sure. I thought maybe, I thought that happened maybe, with the the fellow from West Virginia. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe you know more than I do. I, I, I'm no, not I don't. Sure. I think, <laughs> I saw, no, I think you saw the reactions to uh, state government officials to, for example, the impeachment vote. Right away, the Louisiana Republican Party censoring you know, the, their senator, um, et cetera. I, but, I, you know, there's another aspect of this, though, where uh, it has really put the United States on more of a decline. I mean, not only is the United States now as a country 52nd in the world in terms of press freedom, but, you know, the other thing that has really changed is now we have the frequent demonization of the other political party, that the rivals are criminals. Um, every single election, the fate of the country is at stake. I happen to be in Georgia, not involved in the elections at all from Iowa. But during the time when the two senators you know, were elected, and I watched some of the commercials, and it was just the routine playbook, which is the United States will cease to exist as a country if these two Democrats win. Some Democratic candidates make that same argument. Well, but that is a false equivalency, given that it's not made nearly as often. Right. And this has become just part and parcel of the entire dynamic of right-wing media, talk radio every single day, uh, talk te- talk television, etc. I mean, if you even listen to the, the Democrats' speeches during the impeachment hearings, um, you know, you would think that they thought that the public was well-versed in the Constitution and, you know, would, would subject themselves to reason, etc. Whereas the rhetoric from the other side is, it's pretty clear. <laughs> um, and the demonization of political opponents as a campaign strategy, but also part of really a, a huge swath of media on, on a daily basis. So let me, let me is, ask you this. Do you see the Biden administration as uh, as reversing some of the United States, the U.S. decline globally in terms of its rating among among uh, you know all these d- different democratic standards that are measured, media? Um, uh, not very speech. much. I mean, maybe the United States will go to 52nd to 49th. Um, you know, it's interesting. In the General Democracy Index, the United States is with Cyprus, Jamaica, and Peru. And in terms of what I find very interesting is is the rhetoric and the deliberative components of a democracy. We are right along. Our, our friends are Colombia, Brazil, Bolivia, Namibia. 
in Peru. And in terms of egalitarianism or equality, we are with Botswana and Chile. And the, the Republican Party is not quite Turkey's, uh, Erdogan's Turkey, you know, party in Turkey or um, Orban's in Hungary. But it's closer to those parties, according to these studies, than it is the traditional conservative parties in Canada, uh, the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson's party. It's not only for these reasons in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the birtherism movement, the, you know, breaking, you know, stacking the, or I mean, you know, playing new rules for putting people on the Supreme Court. So, so do, do you think this is likely to change, though? Do you, do you, I mean, is the Republican Party, is there enough dissent within the Republican Party to push back against Trumpism and to kind of move, move away from that, uh, that precipice? Well, I, I, don't, I don't really think the problem is Trumpism. I think most all of these, everything I've mentioned, you could also say before Trump. I mean, I think that, that, that he, he's just very, you know, <laughs> I mean, straightforward and... But I, but a lot of these tendencies were before that, and I think the, the Republican Party, to some extent, correctly made a calculation that, unless that they can suppress the vote and especially gerrymander, House of Representatives races, then they're going to have a difficult time winning in the future because of demographics. And in fairness to the Republican Party, many of them are honest in saying it. When the federal judge in North Carolina shut down some of the gerrymandering, saying it was, you know, surgical. Surgically, the Republican Party was trying to disenfranchise African-American voters. You know, one of the Republicans said, well, yeah, we are, because we really need to make sure that the Democrats don't get into power, because if they do get into power, the United States as a country will, so, will no longer exist. So let me ask you, that in, the, in the less than a minute we have left, uh, uh, give us a, a, a glimmer of hope if you think any exists in terms of reclaiming uh, the political apparatus in this country to something more moderate and balanced. Boy, um, wow, that's difficult. <laughs> um, I, I don't, I mean, I, I, think, I think the glimmer of hope is in the public opinion polls that show that Republicans and Democrats on nearly every progressive issue, minimum wage, getting money out of elections, agree with one another. And if, if somehow the people who march and vote for Trump could sit down and talk with the people who maybe prefer Bernie Sanders, they'd probably find they have a lot in common. I've, I've spent some time watching some of the demonstrations in D.C., and some of the things that are said by what's considered the far right, are really right on target. And it's interesting arguments I've seen them get into with people kind of on the left. And they really are seeing a lot of some of the same problems, and especially, you know, how do you have a country where three people make as much wealth as the bottom of $160 million? It's, it's not sustainable. I mean, it's, what do they say? It's going to either turn to uh, tyranny or, 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 or more democracy. So... My hope would be that somehow people could start talking to one another. That they'd actually find that on the core issues of the day, whether you voted for Trump or Biden, you probably agreed more often than you know. That's one thing we're trying to accomplish with the uh, the 52 conversations with Iowa Trump voters effort. Yeah. 
No, no it's, 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 it's not a bad idea for people to talk to one another because my, you know, my guess is, and I think you understand that, and a lot of your guests would say that, you know, big and little is, I mean, really traditional conservatism, for example, would not want a monopoly economy where nearly every industry is controlled by a small handful of yeah. corporations. That's, that's not, and that's why I, I, I think that we need to drop this term conservative entirely if we could. Uh, and, and, you know, unless we're talking about a lot, a number of the Democrats in, in, in DC, but, but other <laughs> than that, we, we have what is right now a, a right wing and pretty far right wing uh, political party that is, that is going to try to figure out uh, where to go from here. And the democratic party, which could be the subject of another show we have that definitely has its own divisions and its own problems. We will, we will have, we will have to have that conversation sometime soon. Yeah. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, folks, we're talking with Jeffrey Weiss here on the Fallon Forum. Uh, Jeffrey, you have a, have a good, uh, enjoy the rest of the uh, polar vortex. All right. Yeah. Everybody enjoy living under house arrest. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have you back soon. Hey folks, back in a minute when uh, we do come back, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to be talking about how portion size does matter. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. to our business partners and the nonprofits that helped make this program possible, particularly thanks to our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe, a locally owned grocery store in the heart of Des Moines. The cafe is open for lunch and supper seven days a week and for breakfast and or brunch on the weekends. They've got a great catering service as well. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. All right, let's welcome Kathy Burns to the program. Kathy is the founder of Birds and Bees Urban Farm which I'm involved with as well. But it was her effort to get it started. Way to go. Thank you. And um, we talk about a very a variety of things on this program, but uh, somehow in our conversation about what to cover this week, the issue of portion size came up. <laughs> I, think, I, thought, <laughs> I think that might have been due to the extreme portions we allowed ourselves last night. On our <laughs> Valentine's Day? Valentine's yeah, we had, we had a beautiful supper. And so the... Um, you know, years ago, they, this whole thing was kind of brought into focus by Michael Bloomberg, mayor of New York at the time, mm. who tried to limit the size of soda containers. And, you know, he's got a point. I mean, portion size is part of our problem in America. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but can you regulate it like that? Well, uh, there are a couple of reasons we care about portion sizes. Uh, food waste is one of them, and the obesity epidemic. I'm just going to start out with a quick example of part of the problem. In uh, According to a lot of health organizations, the average adult needs between 50 and 175 grams of protein every day. Uh, let's say that the middle of that is 112 grams of protein a day. That's what your nutritional you know, need is. Um, it's just one of the many nutrients your body needs to be healthy. When a restaurant serves you a 16-ounce steak, <laughs> you don't have to order that, but if, you know, if that's what they have in their menu and you want steak, you're taking in 140 grams of protein with just one food item. And if you've already had an egg for breakfast, some peanut butter for lunch or something, uh, you have way more protein. And that's the only nutrient that, that you've got there. Um, you, you'll ha actually have an excess of it. And you, know, you won't have the appetite to have all the other nutrients that your body needs to mm. be functional. Um, let's say you decide not to eat the whole 16 ounces of it and you're going to uh, you know, eat your salad, eat your Brussels sprouts or whatever else. And then bring the rest of that, that 16 ounce uh, steak home to your dog. Well, you hope that you will bring it home to eat <laughs> by you or your dog, but it's going to probably be brought home in a plastic container. Right. Most people don't bring their leftovers home, and that goes to waste. Yeah, what, 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 yeah. what percentage of restaurant food gets wasted? Diners leave 17% of their meals uneaten, and 55% mm. of edible leftovers are left at the restaurant. Mm. U.S. restaurants generate an estimated 22 to 23 billion pounds of food waste mm. a year. Wow. Okay. Pretty bad. Yeah. Pretty bad. So what, why do they continue to put out such large portion sizes when it means they lose money because they toss food? Well, it's it's striking because the portion sizes have drastically increased in restaurants, but it's also at home. Uh, the, uh, the Joy of Cooking book, cookbook, has since, 19, or since 2006 had their serving sizes in their recipes increasing by 36%. Hmm. And so not only is it wasteful, it's environmentally neglectful, but we do have an obesity epidemic. Yeah. And we, we just want to think about some ways to, to combat that, like sharing a meal. And along with that, heart disease, diabetes, hmm. all, these, uh, all these other horrible ailments that are associated with uh, excessive consumption. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so it's not just restaurants. That's an interesting point. Even, even cookbooks have been pushing... The mm -hmm. notion that portion sizes should be larger, way larger than necessary. I think the biggest way to uh, combat that is to be aware of it. And when you open a recipe book, if you're cooking at home, if you have time and are fortunate to do that, uh, think about what you're cooking now and also how you're going to use the leftovers. Just have that in mind as a rule. And when you go to a restaurant, Maybe order the smaller portions, and then if you're still hungry halfway through your meal, you can order more. You don't have to worry that you're going to go hungry. If you're at a restaurant, you're not going to go hungry. So do you think the Michael Bloomberg approach of banning certain uh, sizes of products is appropriate or effective? <laughs> you really wanted to talk about that. I, <laughs> I really haven't, I haven't come down on one side of that or another. Um, I, I would rather start with awareness and education. However, I don't know, is anybody really being hurt by banning 
64 ounce drinks at Quick Chops? Uh, some would argue that liberty, freedom, and, and the American uh, passion for choice is being hurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. You could, yeah, and maybe maybe a better way than just banning would be to provide some incentives to do the right thing. Maybe I think yeah. uh, along with the American uh, fervor for choice is also an American fervor for. Uh, reason and logic, which includes not driving up our overall health care costs by overconsuming. Yeah, and that was the argument against uh, 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 regarding helmet law, uh, helmets on motorcycles and safety belts. <clears throat> is- right, and safety belts too. We need to have safety belts in, for passengers and cars, and motorcycles need helmets mm-hmm. because it'll lead to uh, health care costs that the rest of us have to pick up. Well, by that logic, you might want to also look at. Portion size. Portion right. size. Hey, thanks for joining us, folks, and thanks to all of our guests today, including Steve Suckup, Emily Yeiser, Step, Jeffrey Weiss, Kathy Burns, and thanks to our production team of Kathy Burns and Sherry Herdina. This is Ed Fallon, your host, thanking you for joining today's Fallon Forum. <laughs>